Welcome to the Growth Cap Podcast, where we chat with CEOs, investors, and other key industry leaders to uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. In this episode, we chat with Gus Warren, co-founder and CEO of Bindle, a company that is revolutionizing the way health data can be quickly and securely shared prior to entering a venue. A perfect confluence of events led to Bindle's inception, allowing Gus and his five co-founders to leverage recently developed technology and domain expertise across multiple areas to solve a very timely problem. Bindle utilizes a self-sovereign identity network to allow individuals to share information, such as test results or vaccine certificates in the case of COVID-19, with stadiums, schools, or even family events that may require such information. The venue then has a certain level of confidence to permit entry without actually having to view the source data. Thus, privacy is maintained without the need for the venue to attain HIPAA compliance. Gus shares with us the exciting implications Bindle's platform has for both the current pandemic and beyond. He also shares his advice for other entrepreneurs looking to get their business off the ground. We hope you enjoy the show. So Gus, pleasure to chat with you. It's great to see you as always. And, you know, it's you know, fantastic what you've been doing most recently with your, your latest endeavor. You know, what we typically do here to kick off is, is just get a little bit of background on yourself. Um, you, you know, you've got a very long background in, in the venture community as, as well as in operations for, for startups. So let's start off with your background, if that works. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Great to be here, first of all. Great to see you too. So this is my fifth startup that I've either been an early employee or co-founder of. Of the previous four, three have been acquired and one called Disconnect is still independent. We've protected the privacy of over 350 million people, which we're very proud of. Still an advisor there. And as you mentioned, in between sort of entrepreneurial endeavors, I have also been on the venture side. So I sort of learned the trade out at Hamburg and Quist in San Francisco in the late 90s and early 2000s, and most recently was helping to run the venture group at Samsung globally. And now you're in your latest entrepreneurial endeavor, which is actually leveraging, or I shouldn't say leveraging, but you're basically, you saw an opportunity because of what's happening in the overall environment and, and the pan- pandemic. And you happen to know kind of all the appropriate people to help get this you know, platform technology off the ground. Maybe we could start you know, I hear a little bit about Bindle. Yeah, it was a very, it's sort of one of those rare moments in life where sort of a confluence of events happens and you sort of see an opportunity, you got to jump at it, especially something like this, where we think we can really do some good for the economy and, you know, society and everything. So the story is, so my, the, probably the most relevant element of my background is the fact that my dad is, is an infectious disease doctor. So he ran the department at University of Maryland for years, which is considered one of the better groups in the country. And he and I were talking a lot in February and March about COVID. And he was the first person that told me about all the asymptomatic spread and sort of walked me through the implications of asymptomatic spread with an airborne disease and how traditional sort of responses to a pandemic were not going to work, frankly, nearly as well, especially if it took hold as it has here in the U.S., and when I was at Samsung about a year ago, we made an investment in a company that allows you to use the, the smartphone's camera to take a photo of a lateral flow assay test result. So something like a pregnancy test. 
And so in early April, I had this thought that, you know, if you could combine really cheap diagnostic tests that you could do at home with that capability of the camera on the phone, you'd have a really powerful way to prove to other people that you weren't infectious or at least unlikely to be infectious. And so maybe we could actually go into shared spaces again with you know, confidence. Maybe we could get on planes and stadiums and arenas with confidence even before a vaccine. And so one of the first people that I called is an old friend from Cornell days, um, who I've known for years, Stu Whitman, who was the, at the, had, had recently left Clear as the head of product. And I thought Clear could be a very interesting potential partner for something like this, right? And he walked me through what he'd been doing since he left Clear, and he basically reunited with some old colleagues of his from American Express. And they had built a data network over the course of 18 months that was sort of perfect for carrying health data like this. And the way that the, the data network works, it's a new kind of system called self-sovereign identity, a self-sovereign identity network. And what it allows you to do is share health data with a venue, say like an arena or a stadium, without that venue ever getting access to the data so they don't have to become HIPAA compliant. And so we saw this opportunity that, hey, whether it's a vaccine certificate or a negative test result or a symptom survey or some combination thereof, we're going to need to start as a society, start using health data when we go into places. That's actually going to be part of life moving forward. Mm -hmm. And it just happens to be that this self-sovereign identity network is a really powerful way to do that. It protects the privacy of the person's information and their health data. And it also allows the venue to use health data without ever seeing or handling the data. And, and so this is the, the moment in time where this is you know, most relevant, uh, particularly with all the athletic events happening, either professionally or, or collegiate. You know, one might think, well, you know, this is most relevant now. And as you say, it's going to be relevant in the future. I guess the question is, how, you know, how relevant will it be on an ongoing basis? And I'm certain you've thought all this through. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, interested to hear your, your, you know, your thought on that. Yeah, we get that question a lot. So there's a few, there's a few different angles on that. So the first is that I think there's a lot of people that understandably believe that the vaccine is going to be a panacea and we all want it to be. But the science just doesn't bear that out. I mean, I think this is much more likely to be a vaccine along the lines of, you know, flu or tuberculosis or something than polio or the measles. In other words, there's still going to be people that get, get vaccinated and get sick with the disease and they will still be infectious. So there's a real scenario for maybe even years to come, people who get vaccinated will also need to be tested regularly in order to go into shared spaces. And when, in, in our talks with the sports leagues and the airlines and other folks like that, that is bearing out. They believe that they're going to need not only proof of vaccination, but also proof of a recent test. So that's the first thing. We think that there's sort of a, a longer opportunity in COVID even with a vaccine. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, unfortunately, this is the fourth sort of virus like this in the last 17 years, sort of novel virus. And if you talk to the epidemiologists and pandemic experts, they believe that there's going to be many more, unfortunately, in our lifetime, maybe even another one in this decade. So we view this infrastructure that we're rolling out as also a down payment on preparing for that next pandemic, because frankly, it's a lot easier to come up with a really inexpensive diagnostic test for a novel virus than it is to create a vaccine for that novel virus, right? And so when the next one of these comes along, 
you know, we think the playbook is going to be very clear. You lock down for a little bit, you focus on a really good cheap diagnostic test, and you use a platform, hopefully like ours, to get back into life and back into society and everything. Mm-hmm. And then the, the third answer is really that self-sovereign identity has been one of these ideas that's been bandied about in the tech industry for years, literally ever since sort of blockchain was first invented. And we even looked at it at Samsung quite a bit because our, our mobile folks think it's the future of identity. But we could never find the right use case, the thing that would drive adoption of the network, right? Um, and unfortunately for all of us, we think we found the, the use case, which is COVID. But the, but the implications of this kind of technology are much more far-reaching than, than, than a pandemic. So one, it can be used for healthcare information of all kinds. So electronic medical records are a great example of that. But it's also, if you think about it, it's sort of anathema to how Google and Facebook and Amazon think about data because the way that our technology works is the consumer, the individual, has 100% control of their data at all times. And, it's, and that data is encrypted with a key that's locked in the secure enclave of their phone. So they, have, they are the only ones that can decide to share it. And even if somebody came to us with like a warrant or a subpoena and said, hey, I want RJ's data, we would have no way of getting it, right? We'd have to say, you go, go talk to RJ. So it's a, there's, there's lots of really powerful implications for the technology that go way beyond sort of uh, COVID or, or even healthcare broadly. And so we, we talked briefly about how it actually works. And uh, this will help be helpful for people to know. So, you know, essentially uh, from, from our prior conversations, each individual would actually film themselves taking the test. Do I have that right? Yep. Yeah. So there's a bunch of, there's, there are a lot of different ways that the, the test results can get onto the platform or vaccine certificates can get onto the platform. One is directly with integrations with the, the labs and the test companies, and those are underway. A second is if, if testing is done at home, you can either do a Zoom like this, where there's a proctor on the other side or a notary on the other side, sort of, you know, seeing that it's you spitting into the tube and, you know, there's no sort of fraud there. And then we're also talking to folks about doing selfies where you literally have to you know, do a selfie of your, your, your video selfie taking the test. And then, for example, an NBA or a Major League Baseball or an airline may say, we're going to screen one out of 10 people coming in and look at their selfies so that there's a sort of an incentive not to, uh, to cheat the system. And everything, I guess, is timestamped so that they know exactly when it was taken and what yep. the result Exactly. And actually, the, the venue can determine what sort of criteria they want to have. So, you know, one venue may say, you know what, I'm OK with somebody taking a test at home with a selfie. Another one may say, I want to make sure that that test was done at a lab and it, the lab is certified and like there's, there's a chain of custody all the way through. Right. And, and we've, we've made that very flexible on the verifier side, on the venue side. Because we think that the implications here, the use cases here are anything from going to a, a basketball game, like a professional basketball game, to having a wedding, right? I mean, a bride and groom who know everybody who's coming to the wedding may not require right chain of custody of a test result, right? Because they, you know, presumably they test, they, they, they trust the people who are coming to, to, to the event. So there's a lot of variability on the venue and verifier side. Another, another great example of that is how, like how the virus is circulating. So you can imagine, you know, a Madison Square Garden may say, hey, I need to know that you took a test within the last 24 hours, right? But a small restaurant in the middle of Bozeman, Montana, you know, with 10 tabletops or something might be fine saying, I'm fine if you got a test two weeks ago and you took a symptom survey every day since. So that's 
that's the sort of flexibility we have on the verifier side. Got it. Really interesting that your your dad is probably one of these the people who's watching all the news and watching what the so-called experts are saying and, and thinking to himself, they do know what they're talking about or they don't know what they're talking about. What is what's his view currently and and uh you know, has he, you know, Fauci has obviously been the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's what's been your your dad's take on, you know, both the current, you know, the so-called experts today and as well as what his own thoughts are? Yeah, well, I don't, I, you know, I don't want to put too many words in his mouth, but I think it's fair to say that he's very disappointed at how we've, as a country, responded thus far, right? I think, you know, from the get-go, he was he was one of the ones saying we're going to need really, you know, universal testing and very frequent testing, again, because of all the asymptomatic spread, right? You know, the symptom surveys and the temperature checks, those are important. But I just read an article today that, that one study in the UK had 80% of the people that tested positive on a randomized trial had no symptoms at all. Right? So it's like this very insidious combination of airborne spread with asymptomatic infectiousness. And that's just, it's really, it's really a difficult combination. So because of that, he was, you know, he, he, he would have advocated for, you know, a lot more testing a lot earlier. There's a, a, a growing body of thought that these frequent sort of lower, do, taking a lower sensitivity test on a more frequent basis may be a better approach for us as a country in addition to the sort of higher sensitivity PCR tests that you only take if you know you have some sort of symptoms, right? It's the difference between sort of a diagnostic test versus a sort of a screening test, mm-hmm. right? And we actually are just in the process of uh, working with statisticians to do some analysis that if you took a let's say an eighty percent sensitivity test every couple of days for twenty days, and then you wanted to go to a, you know a major league baseball game, you know, with the combined negative tests over those twenty days sort of effectively mean that that test is not an 80% sensitivity test anymore, but it's actually a higher sensitivity, sensitivity test. That mm-hmm. makes sense. So those are, those are some of the ways that I think, you know, my dad would probably argue that we should have been doing a lot of this stuff all along. And, and, and what about kids? You know, you know, this is top of mind because everyone's kids are going back to school. And, you know, what's interesting is normally, and there, there has been, it sounds like some data around this, that kids are less affected by the virus if they get it. However, I mean, this is anecdotal, but, you know, we had a case here in Princeton where the kid was in fifth grade and actually got really sick. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, any insight you know, any insight there from your end or from folks, you know? You know, I think it's a very personal decision, you know, what to do with kids and going back to school. I mean, I think the vast majority of school districts across the country, if there is an in-person, if they can go in person, there's also an option to go remote. Right. And so I think it's a very personal decision, but it's a really tough one. I mean, you know, we, I just heard about a private school in Westchester that they spent an enormous amount of money getting ready, getting the kids all back to school five days a week. Everything was going well for the first month. And then, you know, a gym teacher went to a wedding where people weren't tested, got it at the wedding, came back, infected the whole gym department. And now the school's closed down for the next two weeks. And they may decide just to stay closed through like January 20th, not even bother going back because they were going to close at Thanksgiving anyway. So it's, you know, it's it's just a very difficult situation. Right. Right. And, and and switching back to the business, what's what's incredible too is you've built up in a very short 
amount of time you've, you've built a team and presumably you've, you've done this all remotely or, or virtually. Tell us about that, that experience. And, you know, like you've recruited some amazing people. I would love to hear about the organization. Yeah, so we have so we're we're eleven full time and another twenty contractors now. So it's, it's, it has grown very quickly. I mean, the company the company was only incorporated at the end of June, and you know, here we are in early October. So it's been a few months, and we've and we've really ramped the team. Yeah, and it's really funny. I sort of joke that so there's six co-founders: myself, uh, Stu, who was the head of product at Clear, Dan Stoller, who used to be the head of corporate strategy at Time Warner Cable, a very senior executive, is leading all of our strategy and partnerships. And then our three colleagues from American Express, one of whom was the CTO of Revolution Money, which sold to Amex for $300 million. He's our CTO, our head of product, did a lot of big product development at American Express over the years, and then started his own incubation shop, which is where this initial self-sovereign identity network started, got built. And then our head of customer success and, and sort of project management, who did a lot of that work as a senior executive at Amex as well. And what's really crazy, so Stu knows all of us and has met all of us in person over the years, right? I mean, Stu, Dan, and I go back 30 years. And he worked with our other three co-founders at Amex for 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've, I actually have only met, you know, this th- three of our co-founders, I've only met on Zoom so far. Mm-hmm. Crazy to think about, right? But that's yeah. that's what's happened in the age of COVID. I'm sure at some point very soon, we'll all get together and, and get tested and all get together. But it's been remarkably efficient, I have to say. I mean, you know, we're already, we've already got the platforms deployed. So we were approved in both the iOS and the Android app stores just after Labor Day, which was not a foregone conclusion because COVID apps sometimes run into challenges there. So the, you know, not being in person has not really been a challenge for us yet. Um, and then we've got a virtual team with the other employees and, and the development t- team as well. So it's, uh, it's, it's worked out pretty well. Well, I have a basketball game that I want to watch at Madison Square Garden in December. <laughs> University of Virginia, where I went undergrad, is is playing there. And I think they just recently confirmed that I was reading it yesterday. What are the chances that regular folk will be able to go in and, and just and, and watch the game? Or is there is there a chance that the NCAA could be using your technology by then? Yeah. So what you said by what date? I think it's mid-December. Yeah. So we're in discussions with all with all the folks that would sort of matter in that decision. But December is too, too quick, unfortunately. I think what we're talking, we're talking about sort of seasons next year, right? Basketball season next year, baseball season next year, things like that, where, you know, we've heard from folks that the software that we built is exactly the kind of software that they need in order to get people back into to the stands again. But yeah, unfortunately, not by December, man. Can't help you out there. <laughs> Got to try. So let's see here. Now, like for, this, will, this will be really interesting for the, all those entrepreneurial-minded people in our audience. I mean, we've got a, a good number of those. I mean, your, your situation is a bit of an anomaly in that you were able to think of the idea and get up and running and start your business and bring in the money in a very you know compressed time frame. You know, I guess what would be your... For the for for others who kind of have you know the idea and are you know trying to get something off the ground, what would be your advice? You know that the the common advice is the minimum viable product. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like you know just get something up and running and and start testing it. 
are you following, you know, that type of approach or, um, because I mean, you've, you've been around the block, you know, multiple times over looking at a lot of, you know, various entrepreneurs and investing. And so, yeah, how are you approaching this? We are, we are definitely following the minimal viable product. And I mean, the, the app that's in the app store, I should be clear, is not, is not designed to be sort of a consumer app. It's actually, it's sort of meant mostly just to demonstrate the underlying power of the technology and the network, right? And so, but we decided to get it out there because we wanted to A, make sure we could get through the, the app store process and B, start to get some, you know, pilots on it. So right now, so we've got a back to work pilot going right now. We've got some events coming up over the next few weeks where everyone's going to get tested before they go to the event. We've got some production studios using it to get back to making TV and, and movies again. And then we've got, you know, a huge pipeline of folks with, you know, universities and, and back to work use cases. I've talked about the sports leagues, airlines, things like that. So uh, your minimal viable product, absolutely get it out there, get people using it. And, you know, if it's not ready for prime time, then just make it very clear that, you know, it's not ready for prime time, right? I say to everybody that is the, the app that's in the app store right now is not meant to be sort of a direct-to-consumer app. The other thing I will say is that I think a lot of entrepreneurs, when they get started with an idea, they think that the idea itself is somehow going to be, you know, proprietary over the long run, Right. And what I always say is like, listen, if you've had an idea, chances are there's a hundred other people who've had it, you know, 10 people may have taken the time to write something down about it. You know, three may have had a conversation with their spouse about going off and doing it. And one or two may actually go, go do it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is not the thing to keep to yourself. In fact, I say that you should be telling the idea to everybody, you know, because that's how you're going to find people that want to join with you to do this. It's like when I called Stu Whitman at Clear, right? Like who's going to, who's going to join with you to do it? How are you going to find employees? How are you going to find customers and partners? How are you going to have conversations like this, right? You want to tell everybody, you know, about the idea. And that's actually the first thing we did is we created a deck, put it up on, you know, DocSend, right? And, you know, made it very clear in the deck that it's a public document and please send it to anyone, you know, and we've had now, I think it's up to 4,000 people view that document. And that's, we've gotten a lot of leads from it, just sort of being, you know, before we, before we even had a website up there, we had, the, we, had, we had the deck out there. So anyway, I think, you know, scream it from the rooftops. If you've got an idea and you want to start a company, tell everyone you know about it. Other interesting thing, uh, your public benefit corporation, it looks like. What, obviously, I mean, it, it seems like an, an, an obvious choice, but it's maybe not so obvious, you know, when you get into the details of what that actually means. So, you know, what made you decide to go that route? Right. So for a lot of people don't even know what a public benefit corporation is. So for the, for the listeners, so basically, if you imagine companies like Patagonia and Ben and Jerry's, and some of us remember the body shop way back when, th these were all companies that were for-profit businesses and are for-profit businesses, excuse me, but also had a social mission and, and wanted to make a real positive impact on the world. And what's happened uh, over the last 20 years since those companies sort of got started is that slowly that concept has gotten formalized. And so now, just over the last few years, the state of Delaware now has something called a public benefit corporation. And what it is, is a, it's a traditional sort of C-corp, right, in every way, except, so it's for profit, everything like that, except that the, 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 uh, the board and the executive team has a fiduciary responsibility, not just to the shareholder, but also to the environment, to society, and that you sort of state what your public benefit is, right? And what that allows the board and the executive team to do is make decisions that aren't always optimized just for the shareholder. 
They can make decisions that are optimized for the environment or society or what have you and not get sued, basically. And so it's a way to formally sort of instantiate this idea that for-profit companies can be explicitly designed to do something very positive for the world. And we felt like, especially in this instance, right, we wanted to, we, we knew we had to be a for-profit company because we have to attract the best talent. We think that that's really critical, right? Especially engineering talent. But we also knew that it was, we needed to make it very clear to the government, to potential partners and everybody else that, you know, we were not in here to gouge people in the midst of a crisis, right? And that we were doing this for the public benefit. And that's, and so it's just seemed like a really perfect fit for us. And so we decided to, to do it that way. And it's played out that way. I mean, I think in, in our discussions with DC and other state governments and things, it matters to them that we've, we've sort of incorporated that way. Yeah, and it's a it's a trend that's been happening for some time, just the general thought of wanting companies to be more responsible, you know, to society and, and to the environment and to their employees, you know, sort of a holistic approach to what the business's impact will be on, you know, uh, on basically its entire environment. And so now you're, you know, a few months in and, and you're hiring a great team. Is this kind of like a sequence of also capital raises to continue fueling? Yeah. There's a long lead time, you know, obviously before you're commercializing, you know, fully. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of technology involved here. So yeah. what, what's the cadence? The nice thing is the underlying tech, that network has been, you know, been built over the last 18 months and was actually commercially deployed before COVID. So it's, you know, it's proven, it's scalable. So we know that, which is great. But there is still a lot of work to do, sort of unique to, to COVID. Um, in terms of the capital raise, we put out a call for a safe, a $2 million safe in mid-August. We locked that up uh, very quickly, which is great. We're in the process now of making a decision. Do we sort of raise another million dollars because we've got interest sort of in the form of a safe, maybe at a slightly higher valuation? Or do we just go right for it and raise the Series A? And I, you know, we'll make that decision at some point over the next three or four weeks. And we've, you know, we've already had some inbound interest on the A and it's been, it's, it's been good. The, the most common question from investors is the question you asked about, Hey, you know, what, what's after COVID, right? Cause um, what's, the, what's the bigger opportunity here? And I should be clear. We, we all would have left our jobs to go do this just to fight the COVID problem with this technology. Mm-hmm. We would not have raised outside money unless we thought the longer term opportunity was worthy of sort of venture kind of returns. And the idea here is that this is sort of a Trojan horse into a much bigger play and identity and, and, and everything else. Yeah. And well, you know, one of the, the reasons why I was like super interested to, to chat with you and have you on the podcast was because, you know, you're, you're doing something, you know, big here and profound here and, and kind of meeting the, the challenges uh, of the time. You know, typically we have on some fairly sizable companies, but I know a lot of people in our audience will be really you know, intrigued by what you're doing, particularly this, the bend towards, you know, helping society. You know, there's, there's a lot of people that, you know, have one lens when they look at private investment and that's how much money do I make mm-hmm. on this deal? Do I make a, you know, 20% IRR? Do I, you know, make a three X to five X? Like, what do I get? Right. But in this case, and this is the trend that, you know, I was, you know, I was consulting one of Deutsche Bank's funds, you know, several years ago, 
And there was a big shift in, you know, the, particularly the younger generations of these mm-hmm. very large family offices where they want, they were actively seeking out investment opportunities in the kind of socially responsible space. Yep. So I think this is like, this is coming at a, like a great time. You know, obviously you're, you know, uh, the right person to do it given, you know, all your uh, connections you know, maybe just to, you know, to close out, where can, you know, folks learn, what's the best way to learn more about Bindle and, and more about you? Sure. So websites, bindlesystems.com. I can be reached at uh, Gus at bindlesystems.com. And the best thing is actually that public deck. So, you know, I, I'm happy to send that. It's better than our website. Our website's pretty high level. But the deck goes into a lot of detail on the business model, on, you know, the team, the whole thing and the technology. I'm happy to send that to you if you if you want to send it out to folks. That's yeah. uh, great too. Yeah, we'll we'll post that along with this podcast link. You know, Gus, great chatting with you, and and I, I know our audience will will find this super interesting. So thank you. Thank you, RJ. Really appreciate it.